Welcome to The Outpouring with Executive Pastor Bob Oliver of the New Covenant Church of Philadelphia. I got a call from a son in the faith, a son in the gospel, who's not from Philadelphia. He's uh, in the South, and he called me, and he said, Pastor, I need some advice. I said, what is it? He said, I missed God. I missed God. When I heard that, I was assured that we would be able to solve it in a brief conversation. It was going to be all right because he had the right posture. He made a decision that didn't work out, but he came to me looking for advice, but already saying, I missed God. You know what it's like when you miss a turn? And I know what that's like because it happens often, even with the GPS, because sometimes my GPS gets disconnected from the satellite or something, takes me away I shouldn't be going. And when you miss a turn, or if you go past a spot that you're supposed to, the GPS will say, make a legal U-turn, turn around. And even before the days of a GPS, when you realize you're going the wrong way, if you missed the turn, you turn around. And when I heard him say, I miss God, I knew he was in a posture of repentance because repentance is to turn around. And he missed God, and in his mind, he knew, I got to go back towards God. The decision I made is taking me away from God. I need to go back in the direction of God. And what he was doing was not a bad thing. It was a Christian thing. It was a good thing, but it wasn't the right thing for him. That's why discernment is so important. And sometimes well-meaning, well-trained people miss God because we do what we think God wants us to do. Rather than saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? And so let's go into our text and develop this. Our first scripture is found in the book of Acts, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And this is for context. Acts 8 and 1 reads, Now Saul was consenting to his death. The death they're talking about is the death of Stephen, a great, great deacon who was anointed and wise. The power of God was on Stephen's soul on the day that they stoned him and bit him, they said, gnashed on him with their teeth, that they saw his countenance as an angel. And as he was laying down in a pool of blood, he said, I see Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And he said, Lord, forgive them. Lay not this sin to their charge. They're killing him, and he's still forgiving. If Stephen can forgive, how much more should you and I forgive? But he saw something, which is the way Jesus postures towards us when we're in trouble. 
In the book of Hebrews, they said that Jesus is a high priest who entered into a hev to heaven and he sat down. His posture is to sit down. Priest in the Old Testament, there was, wasn't even a chair, a, a seat in the Holy of Holy. They stood and ministered. They weren't allowed to sit because their work was never done. They had to do atonement over and over, but Jesus sat down. But when Stephen was in trouble, he stood up. I want you to know that when you're in trouble, Jesus will stand up for you. He stands up every time one of his children is in trouble. Let me continue before I turn and go in a different direction. I don't want to miss God. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I want you to know that God works in the scattering. And before there's a gathering, there's always a scattering. He said he wanted them to be his witnesses in Judea, in Jerusalem. So where did the persecution come? Church in Jerusalem. And then he said, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Sometimes in order for the will of God to be done, pressure has to be applied. And I believe that the things that God wants to do with his church in this season is going to require some pressure to be applied so that we can do the whole will of God. Let's go to the next verse. Verse 2 says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Verse 3, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Now, this Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, meaning he was very orthodox. Today, we would say conservative in his faith, very much so. He spoke seven languages. He was very intelligent. In fact, one day, King Agrippa said, Paul, much learning has made you mad. Paul was an intellectual. He knew the scriptures. He was serving a God that he didn't even know. Serving a God that he didn't know. He missed God, and he didn't know it. He's fighting against the very God who he's zealous for. And that's why it's important that all of us pause in our decisions, in our activities, and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Now let's go to our primary text. Found in Acts 9, verses 1 through 6. 
Acts 9, 1 through 6. And it reads, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Lord, and he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Some translation says kick against the pricks. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So we see Paul, the Bible says, still breathing threats and murder. Threats and murder. This is an orthodox believer who studies all the time, reads the Torah, reads all the books of the prophets and the law. And yet, the only people he wanted to put in jail to murder and whose murder he consented to, Stephen's, were disciples of the Lord. Why would Paul, who had such a zeal for God, do this? Because he thought in his heart and in his mind that he was defending the faith and defending God because his view of God was contrary to this new cult. He thought it was a cult. He thought it was blasphemous. He thought it was contrary to all the law. And in his zeal, he did what he would carry for the rest of his ministry. Paul, who became the most consequential apostle who had 14 letters written, 14 epistles that he wrote by himself that the Lord used to write. And he said, I'm the chief, chiefest of sinners because I persecuted the church. He had this perspective once his eyes was open. Everything changed for Paul when he asked one question, Lord, what would you have me to do? In fact, he asked two questions. The first, 
I don't want to miss. Lord, who are you? That means he's serving God, a God that he doesn't even know. Lord, who are you? And I want you to see something in this text. The word of God is so powerful that it knocked Paul off his beast. He was on his horse, and when he heard the word, the Bible says he fell to the ground. The word of God is quick and is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. All Jesus did was say, I'm Jesus. And Paul fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, calling him by name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul must have been confused. I can't even see you. I've never met you. This is our first acquaintance. Why are you saying I've persecuted you? Who are you? I want you to know that any time that the people that belong to Jesus are persecuted, Jesus takes it personal. That's why he stands up for you. You don't have to worry. He will fight your battle. He's got your back. You might be going through some things that seem hard, but there's somebody in heaven making intercession for you. There's somebody who is sitting down who's now standing up for your cause. He'll stand up for you. He'll fight for you. And now Paul has an encounter with this Jesus who the church is serving, willing to lay down their lives for. He's persecuting, and now he has an encounter with him. You can't have an encounter with Jesus and be the same. Paul was never the same after this moment. Paul, well, he became Paul. He went from Saul to Paul, another more evidence of transformation. You can't go into his presence and not be transformed. There are a lot of people who, like Paul, are very religious, but they don't know the God they serve. They know of him, but they don't know him. They haven't had an encounter with him. You cannot encounter Jesus and be the same. It's not possible. Let me try to make this plain. There are some people that I greatly admire because of their consistent, like Tony Evans, for example, is one of them. What I love and admire and respect about Tony Evans is his consistency and his stance. And I've watched him in different settings on social media speak to the broadcasters and the message was bold. Like most people today would not preach with that kind of boldness because they would be afraid that they won't be invited back. He takes a stand on issues that most people don't talk about because it's not politically correct, but he is committed to the whole counsel of God and to the gospel, and he's not compromising. He's unapologetic, and he doesn't compromise. I respect Tony Evans, but I don't know him. I've never met him. I feel like I know him because I touch him on social media. His children, I've fallen in love with his children. Every time I feel a connection because I admire and respect her father, but I don't know any of them. I've never met them.
I know some stuff about them. I know something about his character from what I can see, but I don't know him. And many people have that kind of relationship with God. They hear about him from other people. There are people who are not churched who send me stuff from YouTube of Tony Evans. He has great reach. His message touches people. But I don't know him. And there are too many people who know of God but haven't had a real encounter. And there are too many people who when they meet him don't have the humility in their life as him as Lord to say, Lord, what would you have me to do? I'm working on a, a, a project in one of my advisory capacities and it's something that's in my heart that I wanna do. It's in my heart and this thing is gonna fund it. And I'm, I'm thinking about it and one day it dawned on me it's in my heart. Is it in my heart or is this desire in my heart because God put it there? God, have you given me this desire? And as I paused, I didn't have an answer. And so I stopped right where I was. And I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? If this is you, if this is your desire, if you have given me the desire of my heart, then God, make this happen. But if it's not your will, if this is not what you desire for me to do, if this passion that's burning in me is not of you, then God, don't let it happen. Because I want to do what you want me to do. I've learned that when I'm in the will of God, whether it is something that is hard or whether it comes with relative ease, the favor of God always causes it to be blessed. Sometimes we interpret hardship as God is not in that. Paul will tell you, from the time Ananias was sent to Paul to lay his hands on him, Jesus said to Ananias, Paul is praying now. He's a chosen vessel, and he must know the things he must suffer for my name's sake. That's not theologically possible or, or um, popular these days, but suffering and hardship is a part of it. In fact, in this text, you see that the church was persecuted, but they were more blessed. That first century church was blessed there were more signs and miracles and wonders and all of those things in the midst of that pressure. God, give us some pressure that we might see your works, that we might see your hand. Let the work of God put us in situations that only you can give us, get us out of, that we might glorify you, that we might recognize and never take for granted or be complacent and know that you are God because God, when we're comfortable, we think it's us. We think it's our own self. When we are in a place where we can figure it out, we don't look to you. That's why I love 
the text in Proverbs 30 that the prophet Agar said. Read that when you get a moment. But there's a verse in there where he says, Lord, don't give me too much lest I forget you. Lord, don't give me too little lest I steal. But give me what is needed because I want to be close to you. But it is important that we take the time to know the will of God in everything, not just the big things, but in the small things. And Paul got to a place where he was breathing cruelty, threats, and murder. And he was confident. He had the authority of the chief priest. He had letters. He had everything. He went from that to being, to trembling and astonishment when he was in the presence of Jesus. You might think you're big and bad, but when you get in the presence of him, you realize that I'm nothing. Just as Isaiah learned in his encounter, so did Paul. And he humbled himself. Lord, who are you? And what do you want me to do? Here's something that is really important. Verse 6. Put verse 6 up. This is instructional. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? This confident man who's threatening people is now in fear and trembling. Then the Lord said to him, arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. God let me know earlier this week as I was preparing for this that some of his children are getting impatient in prayer because they want to see this thing. They want to see it materialize. But in this text, we get some insight of how God causes us to move in obedience. Not because we see the whole picture, because we walk by faith, not by sight. But in our humanness, we want to see it. And then we go towards it to make sure it's not a mirage. Paul asked a very specific question. What do you want me to do? And the Lord said, arise, go into the city. In other words, that's what I want you to do. Go to the city. And when you get there, I'll, you'll be told what you must do. There's some people who would sit there and say, Lord, tell me what you want me to do. Where do you want me to go in the city? Who am I going to go see? Am I going to go to a man called Simon the Tanner? What do you want me to do? Be more specific. No, Paul was learning obedience. He was learning obedience. And so what he did is he got up. He couldn't even see. He got up, and the people had to help him go and find the place. When, as he went, when he got to the city, he was directed on where to go. And after three days, for three days, he didn't eat, he didn't drink, he was only praying. Paul now was in prayer and fasting. And on the third day, God sent Ananias. God will send you what you need. 
He will send you what you need in his timing. He just wants you to obey the instruction. He didn't give Paul the whole picture. He told him, go to the city, not even where to go in the city. And Paul got up and went, and his life was never the same. God is saying to us, it's time for you to move. Don't wait for the whole picture because you know in part, you prophesy in part, but as you go, it'll be revealed. What God wants is obedience. He had a person who had a, a heart, a zeal towards God, but not according to knowledge. He's now learning obedience. He was actually in disobedience, but he didn't know it because he did not know God. And for those of us who are walking with him, let's not take for granted that we got this thing all under control. We need to consistently go to him. Let me give you a case in point. In fact, two, from a man who was after God's own heart. And I believe that one of the reasons that that is so goes beyond his heart as a worshiper. But worship is a big part of it. But David was also a prophet. And there was no one who prophesied of the Messiah more than David in the Psalms, more than any other prophet. But there was something else he did that we all would be wise to do. 2 Samuel chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 22 through 25. And they read, Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. Now I want you to See this. The enemy is surrounding him. And the first thing David does, he doesn't panic. He doesn't go talk to the generals. He's a great warrior. He never lost a battle. And the reason he never lost the battle is the first thing he did as they were surrounding him, deploying themselves in the valley, ready to attack. David inquired of the Lord. And he said, you shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. In front of the mulberry trees. So God is giving him some instruction. And it shall be. Now here he's given David a little bit more than he gave Paul. It's situational because David has an urgent matter in front of him. The enemy is coming to consume him. The enemy is coming to swallow him up. But just as Paul said, what do you want me to do? David inquired of the Lord, and God is telling him, 
listen, David, I know you. He said, you shall not go up. Don't circle around behind them you, because I know you want to ambush them. You want to take them by surprise. Verse 24, he says, and it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. Then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines, the Philistines from Geba as far as Jezer. It is instructional to see. First thing, the enemy is about to attack. He inquires of the Lord. And because God knows David's ways and he knows our ways, he's like, I know your tendency. Don't do that. This time, that's not going to work. Don't do that. And the other reason God was telling him not to do it, we see in the verse. He said, the Lord is going to go before you. David, this battle is not yours. I got this one. But I, I, what I need you to do is obey my voice. Do what I tell you to do. Don't move till you hear the sound of the troops of your enemies and the mulberry trees. Somebody needs to hear the sound of the mulberry tree before you take the next step. He said, and when you do that, the Lord is going to go out before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did. David took it as a commandment, not a suggestion. It says, and David did so as the Lord commanded him. Because he's Lord, he's the commander of the host. David was a great warrior. He never lost a battle, but he knew that the real commander was the king of kings. David was the king of Israel, but he said the king of kings is my king. I'm going to follow him. And whatever the king says, that's what I'm going to do. We've got to get to a place in our life that for every decision, we say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And there are times when we need to inquire of the Lord. Even if we've done something over and over, David had already slew one of the baddest Philistines, Goliath. He had already had many battles that he won, but he inquired of the Lord. Never stop inquiring of the Lord. Before you take a step, find out what it is that God wants you to do. I can tell you, I'm a witness. There are some good things that I've purposed to do. And when I've sought the Lord, the direction has changed or changed. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Lord, what would you have me to do? One other example, the same David is found in 1 Samuel 30, chapter 30 and verse 8. And this is after David had had Everything that he loved, taken, his wives, his children, everything had been burnt up when he came back from war. And the spoils that he had 
were nothing. We could be out laboring and toiling and the things that we possess can come to nothing if the things that we love are harmed. And David felt, if I would have only been here and my men of valor, we could have stopped this. The men of valor felt, David, it's your fault that this happened. And they wanted to stone him. So the first thing David did was he encouraged himself. He strengthened himself in the Lord. Sometimes we got to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And then what he did in verse 8. After all was against him, so David inquired of the Lord. When I can't get help from my friends, when those who've been at my side are no longer at my side, I will inquire of the Lord. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Then the next question, Shall I overtake them? David was very specific. He's like, Lord, should I, should I pursue them? Should I go after them? And shall I overtake them? And here was the answer. Instantly. And he answered him. Pursue. For you shall surely overtake them and without fail recover all. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? What if you had the assurance of God that if you pursue this thing according to my word, you surely are going to overtake them and without fail, you're going to recover all. You've lost some things along the way, but you're going to recover all. I'm the God who promised I'll restore that which the locusts and the canker worms and the palmer worms have devoured. I'll restore all that back to you if you just obey my voice. If you just ask me what I want what I want you to do. Lord, what would you have me to do? I I've learned I've learned to correct myself. When I get into this practice that can be heard in the words of an old song, Jesus is on the main line. Tell him what you want. Call him up and tell him what you want. Some of the saints are singing it right now. But that's not the posture of, Lord, what would you have me to do? We're saying, God, give us direction. We're not giving him direction. It's like a child who goes to their parents, who goes to their parents, and their parents, or consistently they say, do this, do this. What parent is going to tolerate that? It's just not going to be tolerated. And so it is with God, who is our father, we don't instruct him, he instructs us. Lord, what would you have me to do? And so this Jesus is on the main line 
it sounds good, and I understand what the intent is, but I'm telling you that we're in a season where God wants to direct our steps and God wants obedience from his children so that he can do what only he can do. And it's got to be done his way. You remember what the scripture said in the ninth chapter of Acts, that Paul went after all of them who were in the way. There's something about the way. Paul didn't bother anybody else. He didn't get letters for anybody else. They could have been the biggest heathen in Jerusalem. He let them be. But if you were in the way, when you are doing it God's way, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be resistance. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He's got this. That's why he told David, go and pursue because the Lord is going to go before you. I want you to be encouraged. God is going before you. He's got you. He's got your back. He surrounds you. It may look like you're surrounded, but you're surrounded by him. God will hold you up. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord. It's God who fights for us. It's God who makes us more than conquerors in him. We're more than conquerors. There was Alexander the Great. Napoleon was great. But we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. And because of him, there's nothing that we can't do. There's nothing because there's nothing that he can't do. The God who goes before us makes straight our path. I want to leave you with this final thought. This final thought. This looks like it doesn't fit, but the Lord told me to communicate something that's in this text. It's in John 18, 3 and 6. John 18. I'm still talking about asking the question, Lord, what do you want me to do? It reads, then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Do you see a pattern that the authority that was released for Paul to wreak havoc on the church and for Caesar or for Rome to capture the Savior, the living Savior, were priests, chief priests and Pharisees, Selah. Let's go to the next verse, verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things, that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Now, let's go to verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. 
verse 6 and the last verse. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Here's the connection. When Paul heard his voice, he fell to the ground. He fell from the beast. But that encounter changed Paul. And Paul said, what? Who are you? They asked. They were looking for him. So they, in effect, said, who are you? I'm Jesus. Same thing. But these people, they drew back. They fell to the ground. They got up and they still arrested him. His word was powerful in both instances. Whenever his word goes out, it goes out with power because it's his word. It's not about the messenger, it's about whose word it is. As long as it's his word, it has power. But the response to the word that Paul had, it changed his life forever. Paul was never the same. Most of the New Testament testifies of that. But these men, they drew back and they fell to the ground and they got up and they still arrested him. God is saying to somebody, don't fall back. Don't fall back. They, they fell back into the very things that were contrary to Paul. Paul was on his way to Damascus fighting against a God that he thought he was serving. But when he heard his word, he turned. And turning is repentance. These people heard a word that was so powerful. And it was all he said, he was just introducing himself. He's come to introduce himself to somebody, just saying, I am he. And they drew back and fell to the ground. God told me to say to you, don't draw back. Don't let this be another time that you hear the word of God and you fall back into the same stuff. Don't fall back. The Bible says he has no pleasure in the soul that draws back. I'm talking about a God who has, there's no shadow of changing in him. There's no shadow of turning. He's not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. I beseech you by the mercies of God today, make the decision to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? He's already got a plan for your life. There's some stuff he wants to do that you know not of. Paul who missed God because in his zeal, he was doing what he thought God wanted him to do. But when he encountered Jesus, his life was never the same. And 2,022 years later, I'm standing before this camera talking to you about that Paul, who if he would not have made that decision, the world would never have known him. My God, God is talking to somebody 
who he wants to use to turn some things upside down, but you can't fall back and then get up and go back to the things that you were doing before you encountered him. I want you to be like Paul. God wants you to be like Paul and stand before him and say, Lord, who are you? I need to know. I've heard about you. I've heard some stuff about you. And some of the things, quite frankly, God, have been inconsistent because some of the things that I've heard about you, the people who said it, they don't even do it. But who are you? I want to know who you are. And then, God, what do you want me to do? Lord, what do you want me to do? God wants to have an encounter with you through his son, Jesus Christ. He wants to do it for you. For you. And for some of you, like Paul, you've convinced yourself that you're serving him. And like my example of Tony Evans, a man who I admire for his integrity, his consistency, and his boldness. But I confess, I don't know him. He's inviting you to get to really know him. I promise you it'll change your life. It will change your life. Not long, just last week, I saw something that made me very sad. And it was a person who was seminary trained, who was a part of the cross movement, and he denounced his faith. And I was talking to a dear friend and brother about this, and they said, There's only a couple ways to explain this. Yes, it's sad. But one is, the person never really encountered the cross. And that's why the doubts never really encountered the cross. Because even those who were against Jesus, who were trained to be against him, and I'm not going to end that story there, but I, but I have to say this. There was a centurion who stood at the feet of the cross. His job was to oversee criminals. And only those who were criminals were brought to public shame and humiliation by death on the cross. His whole professional career, he's seen it over and over. But as he listened to the crowd, and he gazed up at this Jesus. He knew this was different. He was on his right and on his left were thieves who were deserving. One of them mocked him and one said, we deserve to be here. But Lord, remember me. And he heard Jesus say, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. And he didn't question his authority while others were saying, crying out, seeing the same thing that the centurion who's seen it over and over were saying. They were saying, wait a minute, he's calling Elijah. Is Elijah going to come and save him? Others said, you saved others, now save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down on the, off the cross. There are some people 
that always have barriers that are in their mind and excuses and want something to be proved to them by God who made them. Should, can the clay say to the potter, you've made me like this? The potter has power over the clay. But that centurion, after Jesus breathed his last and he had observed everything, he came to this, this conclusion. He said, surely this is the son of God. There was enough evidence. He had seen enough. I promise you that God is going to give you the evidence that you know that it's him. He's going to do some stuff in your life that cannot be explained other than this is God. He's given me the insurance that he's going to do that for you because today he wants you to, to bring you to a place like Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was going to the destination for a purpose that was not of God. In Paul's mind, he was defending God. But God doesn't want us to do the things that are in our mind. He wants us to do the things that are in, on his mind and in his heart. And that's how he wants to flood our minds and our hearts. And that's how we become like him. That's how we become his disciples. That's how we become his ambassadors in the earth. And he wants that for you. Text decision. If you're one of those who falls back, text decision. You know who you are. If you're one of those who have questions and doubts, text decision. He's going to clear it up for you. He's going to clear it up for you. And for all of us, may we leave this place knowing that it is the will of God that we seek him in everything. If he's Lord, he ought to direct us. May we, like David, inquire of the Lord. May we, like Paul, say, Lord, what do you want me to do? That's how you have good success. And there will be times where he'll give you one step. He wants you to walk in obedience. Like the late, great John Lewis would often say, after you pray, move your feet. We need to move. We need to do something. God doesn't want us to stand still until we hear the whole picture. When he knows he can trust you, when he knows that you walk in obedience, he will reveal himself in ways and in dimensions that you know not of. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to your children in a language that we understand. Like your servant David, you know our ways, you know our tendencies. And God, when we're about to do something, in a way that's familiar, that we've done it before and seen victory. Even when we've seen you do it, may we inquire of you. Because God, there are times you say, no, don't go that way. 
This time, do it differently. I'm going to go before you. God, go before us. And like your servant Moses, we stand before you today saying, if you don't go, we don't want to go. How else will they know that we belong to you unless you go before us? Make straight our paths. Make it plain, oh God. Surround your people, for many are the afflictions of the righteous, but Lord, you deliver them out of them all, and so we bless you. We honor you. We are not afraid because you're with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Thank you for preparing a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Surely you've anointed us. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow your people all the days of our lives. And we want to dwell with you. We want to dwell in your house forever. And God, even though we're scattered, we know that you're working. You're working. In the days of Paul, the church of Jerusalem was scattered and he went into every house because he knew that you were in the house. You're in every house. The enemy comes in our house to drag us out because they know you're there. But God, I put blood over the lamppost of every door because where you see the blood, you promise to pass over, pass over. Pass over, pass over every home that hears this word. Pass over. The blood, we apply the blood, the blood of Jesus. The blood, the blood, the blood is applied. God, we thank you. God, we praise you. And God, we now ask for the rest of our days. This is our question to you. What do you want us to do? Teach us your ways. Teach us your ways. Bless your people now and make them a blessing. In Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us in service today. We pray that this ministry has been a blessing to you and your family. To give your gift of love and help keep this ministry on the air, visit nccop.church giving for all of the ways that you can donate to the ministry. Thank you so much for your generosity and God's blessings until we meet again.